Okay, February the 19th, 2017, lecture discussion number 271 on the book of Romans. And so if you've missed the previous 270, might be a little trouble today, but don't worry. I'll catch you up in 30 minutes or less. Uh, once again, one more time, we are at Romans 5, 6 through 21. I end up there a lot when I do Romans because it is where Adam is specifically mentioned. And, and therefore, also, whenever you're dealing with Adam, you end up in 1 Timothy, let me put Romans, or you end up in 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 15, typically, mostly 13 and 14. So make a note to yourselves, dear self, whenever evaluating Romans 5, 6 through 21, or Genesis 3, because both of these are going to take you to Genesis 3, as most of you know, uh, whenever you're at the trial of Adam and Eve, which is what Genesis 3 is, is a legal procedure, it is a trial, always tell yourself, I have to include Romans 5, 6 through 21 and 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. Now, just for fun, let me say what's, what's coming next without really explaining why it's so. 1 Timothy 2 cannot be correctly Understood without the context of Adam and Eve. You'll hear countless sermons on 1 Timothy 2. If they don't mention the trial of Adam and Eve and the issue of Adam's typology, which is here, and the issue of Adam being the vehicle through which sin entered the world, then they're going to get 1 Timothy 2 completely wrong. So, let me repeat it this way. First Timothy 2 cannot be correctly understood without the context of the trial of Adam and Eve. First Timothy 2 contains verses that are quite mysterious and overwhelmingly misgaged. And that's to be kind. They're polluted without almost without exception. That would probably be more precise, polluted instead of misgaged. Here they are. I'll give you just one part of it. I'm not going to read all of it perfectly, but I'll just kind of pick and choose as I go through it. I therefore, I'm sorry, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Now, that's one example. That's 1 Timothy 2.8. I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. I'll almost guarantee you that when that's preached, it is without the context of Romans 5, Genesis 3. So you can, your expectations should be low if that's the case. Men are told to pray without wrath and doubting in that passage. So what's the obvious question there? I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, pray without wrath and doubting. What's that mean? Obvious question. Wrath towards what? Apparently, there is a lot of praying going on in, in Ephesus with, that is wrathful or angry or, if you will, hateful. So who is doing that? And who to, towards whom is the hate and the wrath occurring? And doubting what? And doubting who? In other words, is it an out-of-context general wrath and doubting that he's talking about here? Or... Is it specific to 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7? Which is, I believe, the case, because there's a therefore. 
therefore demonstrates that the general that it is not general wrath and doubting. It is specific to First Timothy two one through seven. Therefore, again, demonstrates that. So what it then is symbolized by lifting up holy hands? Apparently, there's a criteria. There's a definition. What are the chances that definition is ever discussed? You'll see people who lift up their hands. That's very common. Do they do it in the way that 1 Timothy 2 says to do it? Are they lifting up holy hands? Are they understanding what is symbolized by lifting up holy hands? What principle is it? What doctrine is it? Is holy hands referencing a principle or a doctrine? I think it's obvious that it is. Again, it's the context demonstrated by the therefore. And what does this have to do now with the trial of Adam and Eve? Because uh, I've made the case already, I hope, that Romans 5, 6 through 21, 1 Timothy 2, I'll take it all the way from 1 to 15, and Genesis 3, the trial of Adam and Eve are intermeshed, they're interconnected. It says so in Timothy, for, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. So Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nonetheless, she will be rescued in childbearing. So clearly, I submit, in, uh, I submit that First Timothy 2, 13 and 14 belongs with the, with the most difficult to understand passages in all of the New Testament. When you're talking about Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve, you are now in very deep material. And 1 Timothy attaches Adam and Eve to holy hands. Let me read it again. Adam was formed first. Why does he have to say that? Who doubts that? Why do they doubt it? Why do they hate it? For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. Who hates that? Who doubts that? A lot of people doubt that. How's the church doing here? Not good. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nonetheless, she will be rescued in childbearing. Do not think that these are simple processes or simple passages. There aren't any simple passages or simple um, contexts in the Bible. They're all this way, and you start to, to recognize that the older you get. Obviously, 1 Timothy 2, 1, uh, 1 through 15, or in this case, 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, is referencing the, top, the trial of Adam and Eve. I know that because of what word? Let me read it again. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nonetheless, she will be rescued in childbearing. That's obviously talking about Genesis 3. The childbearing alone is going to send us to Genesis 3.16. Note also 1 Timothy 2.11 and 12. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I, I enjoy reading those verses just for the effect of it. Let me read it again. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Woman in silence. Let's talk about that. Never mind. Let's not. Let's not do that. <laughs> uh, the vast internet audience just fell by half right here. <laughs> Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. What is she supposed to learn? 
Is it a general learn or is it specific to the context? The therefore. Clearly, it's specific to the context. Why would you say generally when it's obvious that it is not generally? So what is it that the woman has to learn? She's not learning something. I want to know this woman's name. I've said that my whole career. Why didn't Paul name her? I want to know. Is she by herself? No, apparently she has a cadre of subordinates. What is she doing? What does she need to learn? There's a doctrine that she does not care to know. And she needs to be silent until she knows the doctrine. There's your clue. Shut up until you learn this. What is it that she's supposed to learn? And I do not, it goes on, Paul writes this, the Holy Spirit through Paul, and I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Why? Ask why. What's going on here in Ephesus? Who's doing it? Why are they doing it? How many of them are doing it? What's their motive? And somehow it ties to Eve. So what do we now know about Eve? Apparently there's a connection between these women and Eve's motives. So we're now investigating the motives of Adam and Eve. What's happened here? Why did Paul charge Timothy to fix it? It obviously is very serious. As you know, many churches uh, in, in our country for sure and all throughout history have seized upon Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 and extracted it out of its context, utilizing it as a control device. They bludgeon women with these verses illegitimately, wrongfully. But they do it, why? They like doing it. They do it on purpose. It's intentional. They think it gains something for them. What could it possibly gain? Here's no surprise. There's an overabundance of religious organizations that cater purposely to men who are, unre- who are unreluctant to subjugate women. Look at the Middle East religions. The Middle East religions, I'm fascinated by people who defend them. I get, I've gotten some really questionable responses to some of the things I've said about certain religions. Dave nods yes. There are religions who will not allow a woman's face to feel the sun or the rain or the wind. And that's that's subjugation at the highest level. That's almost unexplainable. And if you find this in, in, in your travels, if you see a church that has twisted First Timothy and has not assigned it to First uh, Timothy 2, has not assigned it to Romans 5 and Genesis 3, run for your lives. If you're a woman, really, I'm no really, run. If they can't figure out what's going on in First Timothy, trust me, the church is going to be a wreck, theologically, doctrinally. How do I really feel about it, is what you're thinking. Huh? <laughs> okay, as is the case continually, this is 
another occurrence traceable to a cause. Cause and effect. That's what I mean about First Timothy. I can figure out what he means by figuring out what caused it. There's a doctrine, a principle that isn't being taught. And the women who are doing this in this particular church had to be set aside and rebuked because what they were doing was wicked, dangerous, destructive. An occurrence traceable to a cause. Figure out what happened and figure out what caused it. Obviously, there were explicitly unnamed women being addressed here, defined, stated women who were attempting something, and the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, identified what it was that was threatening the Ephesian church. And all you have to do is back up. 1 Timothy 1.3 As I urged you, Paul says to Timothy, Holy Spirit telling Paul, as I urged you, Timothy, when I went into Macedonia, remain, Timothy, in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So clearly I have some other doctrine now in Ephesus. What is the doctrine? To keep repeating myself. Paul tells Timothy, stop the teaching of these other doctrines and silence these who are doing this. In this case, it happens to be women. I found it fascinating to find uh, religions or Christian um, offshoots, if you will, that have been founded by women. And I want to see, is this the identical problem that Ephesus had? Do they pervert the same doctrine? What do you think? Oh, yeah. Almost always. Then I want to know... Does that have something to do with Eve's motives? What do you think? What doctrine do you suppose these women are teaching? What does God tell Eve to do? What does Paul tell these women to do? Is there a similarity? Yes, there is. Why do you suppose that's true? What did Eve believe? She believed something. A doctrine, if you will. Not a doctrine, but she believed a lie. She was deceived by something. Do you suspect that these women here are deceived by the same thing? Would that be logical? I submit that it's very logical, and I think that's how you solve it, but we'll continue. Paul continues teaching, uh, or continues in 1 Timothy 1.4, Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. So, what have I now got? It's, uh, is it not clear? That's a rhetorical question. It assumes that it is clear. That endless genealogies is in opposition to the godly edification which is in faith. So I have people putting out fables and endless genealogies that are in conflict, complete, absolute opposition to godly edification, which is in faith. Is it also not a shock that Genesis 3.16 now rises to the surface? Remember, go and remember Eve's sentencing. It's in your bulletin. Uh, And I'm, I'm not reading it because if I start reading all of these passages today... I'll just bog down and we'll all die that horrible death that happens every Sunday when 
drowning in the drool. It's really, really sad to see. Some people accused me of doing it purposely for the joy of watching heads slam together. And that's hardly true most of the time. Genesis 3.16 rises to the surface because childbearing and ease, deception, and Timothy tells us that's what's going to happen. Here's what it says in Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So I have sorrow, conception, Childbearing, you can make pain, sorrow. Those are the issues of Genesis 3.16. That is exactly the issues of Timothy 2. Your desire shall be for your husband, it goes on to say, and he shall rule over you. Does that sound like Timothy? Be silent and submit to your husband until the doctrine that you are teaching can be eliminated. There, there is no dispute as to the connection to 1 Timothy 2.15 and 1 Timothy 2.11-12. through 12. Perhaps less known is the sameness at Genesis 4-7. God uses the identical language with Eve. He uses it with Cain. Sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. So, when we've accumulated the pieces of the trial of Adam and Eve, the issue foremost for Eve is childbearing. And there is this avowed act now at Ephesus of women, uh, by women, and they're rebuked. Somehow this repeats the motives of Eve. There's a sin that crouches at the door waiting to strike as a lion. Genealogies and fables are in absolute opposition to truth, faith. Adam is not deceived, but Eve is deceived. She's the first in sin, lifting up a holy hands as opposed to unholy hands, having hands lifted up without wrath, without doubting, as opposed to hands that do have hate and doubting. That are our pieces. And it appears the structure of the passage implies the women in question in Ephesus were characterized by wrath and doubting. These are women that hated something. Again, hated what and hated who? Hate for what? Doubting what? And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking he's not going to explain this. And and you'd be right about that. You're thinking he's going to pivot back to last Sunday. And he's going to do it now. And you'd be right about that. This is where the real sermon begins. All that's the case today. It's time to start the real sermon. Make the donuts. 
the vast internet audiences involved here, they demand that I go to, in an ordered format, the numerical consistency. If I were to shift completely, they would be mad at me. But I have to include this because it is part of what we're talking about. I just interjected it at the wrong time, making up for not being able to get it in last week. So now I've got to go back to last week, if that makes sense to you. Think about the lecture as more or less a typewriter that, that a chimpanzee is at. Last Sunday, we had a pile of questions on the table just like this, didn't we? And we barely got through them. So I'm going to try my best to get through some of it today. I'm going to devote some time this week to not really answering those that I didn't answer last week either. Thank you for laughing at that. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I, should, I should put this. I had somebody this last week. Um, he hit me with this uh, resuscitated catchphrase that is uh, making the rounds again. You know, I'm fascinated by all this stuff because it just continually repeats. But it's almost in, it's in high schools now and it's in college campuses. And it's this. You've seen it, I'm sure. I hope you have. Because this is what they're saying to us now. Science is real. This, uh, this is uh, funny too. I can't help but do this. Eric, of course, I used to teach at a school here in town. And Eric, my son, is now teaching at the same school. So I have gone to these events where they're calling him Mr. Chronister, and it just freaks me out. But he had a parent that had me for seventh grade science. Uh, <laughs> and this really come to his teacher conference, and her child is in his one of his classes. And she said, my, my daughter came home and said, uh, Mr. Chronister, Eric, I shouldn't do that, should I? And I'll look him up and he'll get bad mail too. But he, he throws dry erase markers at his class. And, and the lady asked the name and Eric's name was given and uh, she went, oh my goodness. <laughs> he, he, she came and told Eric that... Uh, that I really did throw chalk erasers at the end. So hopefully I hit her. <laughs> that was my desire, to hit every single student with a chalk-filled eraser, send them home, especially like the ones that wore dark clothing, because it just, bam, went all over them. And I delighted in that, and I could get away with it back then without the lawsuits that you would get today. That's why I'm not teaching in the public system anymore to avoid the prison sentences. But I had this guy call me. Or I talked to him. We were negotiating the cost of some equipment here, and he said science is real. Obviously, he looked at the purchase. He figured out that it was church-oriented, and he said to me, science is real. And what's the unsubtle emphasis in that or inference in that? And that is that the church is engaged in illogical, irrational fantasy. Forgive the redundancy. Science is real, therefore religion is fake, to boil it to its uh, core, its premise. And the conceit in such statements uh, no longer startled me. I'm accustomed to that. I'm also impermeable. 
But this young man who presented this to me assumed that it was unassailable, which is very common, as you know, as usual, to which I responded to him as calmly, as quietly as I could, because I didn't want to lose my fish. You don't jerk on the line. You go really slow. He was convinced that his position had no penetrable areas. Science is real. Science, by its own omission, I responded, is confined to that which is the material, that which is physical. Materialism, physicalism, that is the restriction of science. And science self-confines and self-restricts it to that because they don't believe there's anything but the physical. Thus the slogan can be restated, and I restated it, only the physical realm exists. The result of that is that the spiritual realm has to be non-existent. There is no existence of a spiritual realm or a spiritual construct of any kind. Only the physical realm exists. That's what science is real is saying. Because science studies nothing else. And if you don't have a spiritual realm, then you're missing something, I told him. You're missing will, your mind. You're missing free will. He has a two-year-old. My argument has been made before I begin. And he said he had a free will, the two-year-old. I said, how is it that the two-year-old will lose its free will when it becomes an adult and says science is real? Free will is rendered to be an illusion by, by science and physicalism because will is not a physical system. The mind is not physical. It is a mental property, not a physical property. And I told this young man effectively, you have now exactly uttered, when you say there is no free will because that's what he believes, physicalism will tell you there is no free will. Study it. I won't go over it again today. Everything is purposeless. Everything is random. That's physicalism. That's science. And I made the comment that you have now uttered exactly to me what Satan uttered to Eve at Genesis 3.2. No free will. That is Genesis 3.2, word for word. Hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The, the, the hidden meaning in that question is that science is real and there is no free will. Mankind is a physical only framework completely absent of will. That is what Satan is saying to the woman. What does this have to do with those women now in 1 Timothy 2? And, of course, as I began to discuss this with this young man, this naturally led to an analysis of, of the quantum reality versus the classical Newtonian reality, the world of the subatomic. As you know, you've been here a while, the subatomic is 99% nothing, emptiness. 
It's called the metaphysical implications of subatomic diameter. That just is a fancy way of saying when you evaluate the micro quantum world, you find that it is all empty space. There is no physicalism in it. Very small. And now we're arguing over if there's any. They say to you that if I took the physical system that you are, water, of course, is hydrogen and what? Oxygen, those are gases. How much gas are you? Some are more gassy than others. <laughs> Some exhibit a, a gas uh, cre- uh, uh, content that is extraordinary. Powerful, I would say. That happens as you get older. The fact that the quantum subatomic micro level is nothingness, emptiness, tells you that there, what is reality then? If, if I can boil a human being down to a grain of sand, that's what we are physically, then my physicalism has very little significance. I'm not saying it isn't there. I'm saying its significance isn't much. Therefore, the implication is, is this is not real, then what is real? Well, the only thing left that can be real is something that isn't physical. Which implies the spiritual. See the logic there? Hopefully you will. Eventually I was able to present the case that without intelligent omniscience or spiritual observation, perception, the observer effect, physical reality cannot exist. That's George Berkeley, for whom the school has named itself completely uh, without any concern for what George Berkeley ever thought. George Berkeley proved that there is only a spiritual reality ultimately. And God says uh, without stuttering, without equivocation in John 5.24, the Bible says, John made this as clear as he could be, that God declares himself to be what? Does God say, I am a physical being? He does not. He says, I am spirit. God is spirit, 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 spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit. What's implied by that verse? If you can worship a spirit, then you must be what? A spirit. You must have a spiritual uh, component. And and as soon as you begin to recognize that a spirit is not subject to physical processes, that means that you cannot die and cease to exist. Science is real, says you will die and be extinguished. As you know, that's just basic monism. I'm repeating things that I've said hundreds of times. But I'm doing it uh, this time because of the subject we're in. That is Genesis 3. Satan says to Eve, science is real. Hath God said, do you have free will or not? Are you a free willing will being? Do you have existence? Because if I have no free will, you've heard me say this thousands of times, I do not have existence. Do you really exist? Are you real? That's what Satan is saying. And how interesting that this is now in half the high schools across the country, posted on the wall. To the point where they'll say it to you when you call them up and talk to them. That's identical to Genesis 3.2. That is Satan himself. Do they know that? No, they don't know that. There's one that does know it now. The point being that is that man is spiritual primarily, overwhelmingly. 
Therefore, the spiritual is the true reality, not the physical. So the opposition to this is not, is not what you think, not that religion is real, the spirit is real. The physical is merely a mechanism that reveals the spiritual. It allows the mind to explore, create, communicate, worship, experience, joy, growth. So, science is the study of the universal laws that govern the emptiness that is the physical reality. And even with that, science describes the activity. It does not explain the why of the activity. Science discovers the laws, but science cannot and does not explain the laws the existence of the laws, the fact that the laws came into existence. Edgar Andrews, a brilliant physicist, um, supermolecule expert, puts it this way. Science cannot explain itself. Science cannot explain science. If science can't explain science, how real is it doing? That's bad English, I know, but that's the point on purpose does not portend, portend well for science that it's in its claim to be will. Try again. Let me go a different direction. In Genesis, the order is there's creation. And then what comes next? I have physical reality. Then what comes next? The next thing after the living souls are created not just physical beings, but living souls. That's living spirits that cannot be extinguished after they are created. That includes <coughs> uh, the, all the animals are called living souls. So they come into existence. Existence, again, requires non-physical free thought. Thoughts are mental properties. Let me just ask you this. Can you know anything? Science is real. Can you know anything without free will? Does a computer, it has lots of information in it, does it know it? Does it have free will? I can't know anything unless I have free will. Science says there is no free will. Therefore, I can't know anything. What kind of logic is this for something that portends to be real? For it's claimed to be real. It's not coincidence that creation was followed by this question of Satan to Eve. Are you real? Do you have free will? Do you have existence? Or are you not real? How can you prove you're real? There's all kinds of shows on TV today about artificial intelligence. This is the discussion of artificial intelligence. Again, do you want me to do that lecture one more time? No one raised their hand. Let the record show. No one was interested in that being repeated. I just want you to note for today, it's not coincidental that I have the creation of living souls and physical environments and physical mechanisms. And then the very next question is about the free will, which means and the mind, which is a discussion on the reality of the personhood of Eve. And that is how we start with the lie of Satan, right? And it's going on today. Okay, got that out of the way. Time is doing good.
laying down substrate is what I'm doing. I can't put the tile on the floor until I put the AC plywood. Then I might have to float it out a little bit. Now I can start with the mastic because I don't do thin set because I'm tired of mixing thin set. I know you can buy pre-mixed thin set. Don't send me the letters. But I use mastic because it's petroleum based and we live in Alaska. You can't have mastic in California. So I have all the mastic I can get that's petroleum based because I love petroleum. It's mine and I'm hoarding it. And it's fantastic because petroleum is very adhesive to things that are, have water infiltrated into them. It's not as permeable as latex. Good grief. Why would I use latex to stop water? You can't buy oil-based paint very much anymore. I, all the painting I've always done, I've used oil-based paint in Alaska. How come? Can you see? Three, eight, nine, how many feet of snow we got now? Good grief. Let's put this on your deck. Latex. Okay, I'm, what's happening to me? I need... <laughs> the audience says, we don't know again what's happening to you. He's probably hungry. Get to the buffet, you dummy. Okay, let's take a run at the nakedness of Adam. That came from last week. I asked a lot of questions about the nakedness of Adam. And you remember, I said, this is called, he is called by Scripture the first Adam, and Christ is called by Scripture the second Adam, but mostly, and more correctly, I believe, then the second Adam, some people have inferred that, I believe the last Adam is more so complete. There's nothing wrong with the second Adam if you understand that he is the last Adam. There is no other Adam but him now. They are the only two federal heads of humanity. And I said that Adam was naked. There's no question about that. It's discussed uh, uh, quite a bit in the New Old Testament. And I asked, is the last Adam, is Christ himself, this is Christ, God, Jesus God, no hyphen, Acts 2, it's all one word, Jesus God. I have a nakedness of the first Adam. Do I have a nakedness of the second Adam? And the answer is, obviously, I do. And Adam has at least, and so we began to... to uh, to discuss the nakedness of Adam and the nakedness of Christ to see how they fit together. Are they the same? Adam has at least two nakednesses. Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.10 are his two nakednesses. Naked and unashamed, afraid and naked. There's a difference. I have an unashamed nakedness and I have... Is nakedness a word? It probably is. Is nakednesses a word? Probably not. Do I just like saying nakednesses? Yeah. I do. It's probably why I do it. But I have a phrase. Naked. So Adam has at least those two. I'll make the case that he has a third here in a second. Naked and unashamed and afraid and naked. So two different nakeds. 
And Jesus Christ, infinite God himself in the flesh, is naked on the cross. So, so if you will, I'm going to look at cross, the nakedness of Christ on the cross, the nakedness of the last Adam, and compare it to the unashamed nakedness that then becomes the afraid hiding naked. Naked on the cross is standard Roman execution protocol. I know that he was naked on the cross. I know it. How do I know it? I have free will. Science isn't real. How do I know that he is naked on the cross? Because Adam is naked. And the first Adam and the second Adam or the first Adam and the last Adam are going to connect. I also know because of Romans 5. Adam is a type of Christ. We'll get to that in a second. What that means. So Christ is naked on the cross. That's the way they did it. And it makes sense because of Genesis 3. The case can be made that Adam is also naked at Genesis 3.21. That's where God removes Adam's covering of figs and replaces them with the blood coverings of skin. In last lecture, we read Matthew 27, 26 through 35, where Jesus Christ, the last Adam, is stripped by the Roman executioners. So God takes the, uh, the skin, so I have, I have fig nakedness, and he removes it. And Christ has his garments stripped off of him by the Romans. And we saw that relationship between what the Romans did for, or did to Christ. Um, we see a relationship to that which God did with Adam. And you can make the case that any physical representation of God is Christ. So that would be Christ that removed the figs from Adam and replaced them with the skin, blood, red coverings. Christ is stripped by the Romans and they put a red robe on him. That is not an accident. It was a, a coat. So I have man putting, taking the garments of Christ off and putting a military coat on God. I have also man stealing God's garments. That's brilliant thinking. And Christ is subsequently, after the robe is put on him, the garments are taken off and stolen from him, including his tunic that is woven without seam, as you might remember. And the obvious question becomes, to what is the tunic of Christ that is without, without seam? I can barely get the words in there. Where is the relationship over here? Is it the same as the figs? Is it the same as the skin covering? Which one matches the tunic without seam of Christ? And they will match because one is the first Adam and the other is the last Adam. Adam, Adam. He's a type of Christ, for goodness sakes. It's going to match. What of the first Adams is the parallel to the last Adam's tunic, to put that in a in a correct wording. The tunic, again, without seam, is thought to be the inner garment of Christ, touching his skin. The talit of Christ is the head covering, the prayer shawl with the fringe. We've talked about the fringe. He also had sandals. He had other garments. 
and the Romans divided them all up, which is what they did. The executioners got the stuff that the executed had as part of their uh, compensation package. The red coat turns out to be, they put a red coat on him, a military coat, that turns out to be the outer covering. Now, it should be noted here, Isaiah 6, and I'll go ahead and read Isaiah 6. becomes very important to know how Christ is. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, talks about Christ in the heavenly temple, as does Revelation 4, 2 through 11, and let me read that. In the year of that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah, he's being called to be a prophet. So in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, Isaiah saw, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Christ has a robe, and it is a big robe. And it fills the heavenly temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. And with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, I am unclean. I should never be a prophet. I'm a mess. I'm unqualified. Don't let me anywhere near the job. That's exactly who God wants. Moses said the same thing. Show me somebody that's eager to stand up here. And I tell you, throw chairs and run. He hasn't read the job description. I'd like to do my joke again on inverse proportionality with regard to the wages and income of the pastor. But I've done it twice already, but I do love the joke. This robe that Christ has is what is being described in Philippians 2.7. I won't read Philippians 2.7 but it's what's called kenosis theory, that God, Christ, took off his deity. I ask all the time, how long does it take to take something off that is infinite? Infinity is an authority over time. Which is bigger, time or infinity? See, careful. Uh, Dana and I were talking about this at Home Depot the other day, and no one was around us. When we were talking about that. Uh, that wasn't just merely a situation, which it was. But had we been around people, no one would have stayed around us. When we're saying, which is bigger? This is a silly way of putting it. Understand that. But which is bigger, time or infinity? Is, in, is there levels of infinity? Do I have some infinity more than other infinity? Which has more, infinite God or the numerical system? Who made the numerical system? Who made time? There's your first clue. How big is this robe that Christ has that is his deity? He can't take it off in time because it's his deity is in authority over time. He's the creator. So you can't say, well, he's going to take his robe off, which is his deity. How long is it going to take? Not enough time. So what is the robe that he takes off? 
at Philippians 2, 7. He hides himself. He's hiding himself. He hid. Hid. You see, they both do it. Christ takes off this robe that Isaiah describes. That's what's happening in Philippians. I would read more if I have time, but I don't. So there's the pieces, not all the pieces, but a good amount. Time now to ask the, re-ask the question, what is the same about the first Adam's nakedness and the last Adam's nakedness? They are the same. They have to be because of typology, but they're not the same. So what is the same and what is not the same? One is the type, the other is the antitype, which means the fulfillment or the, or the fuller type or the infinite type in this case. What is the difference between the first Adam's nakedness and the last Adam's nakedness? What does nakedness even mean? Because it obviously has meaning besides nakedness. I hope that got through. What does it really mean? It's a symbol for something, isn't it? No time today to bring in the nakedness of Noah, as I have in the past with respect to Adam, just for today. Noah and Adam, same thing, intermeshed. Noah has this nakedness too, so we'll be able to find more clues about what nakedness means. There does seem for today to be a death constituency in the nakedness symbol. I'm... I'm afraid, I'm naked, and I'm hiding, because I'm dead. I have the nakedness of Christ. Do I have the death of Christ? If I have the death of Christ, I have to have the death of, of Adam. So there is, again, a nakedness element here. Remember, Adam admitted and confessed. Here's my favorite word of the day. He knew. He knew something. He can know. God immediately identifies something about living creatures. What does he say? All, all throughout verse 3 chapters, verse 4 chapters of Genesis. Living souls can know. Uh-oh. That means there's something besides physicalism. If you can know, there's another reality. Which reality is the real reality? They're both reality. One has authority over the other. Again, Adam admitted and confessed he knew, Genesis 3.7, Genesis 3.10, that he was naked. He knew it. Also connect the hovering of knowing good and evil over the entirety of Genesis 2 and 3. Genesis 2.17, the tree of knowledge. You can know good from evil. Man has become one of us to know good from evil. So knowing is here. Nakedness has, a, again, this death. Uh, what would I call it this time? I don't know. It just has a death stench to it in this case at some point. But here, so does unashamed nakedness in the sense that it does it seems to not. So nakedness attached to death somehow. Next week we'll figure that out. There is a first death and a second death, as you know, for all of us. That's Revelation twenty fourteen. Nakedness somehow comports with both deaths. So how does it do it? He's dead. He knows he's dead. I know I'm naked and I'm dead. 
and I'm hiding, and I'm afraid of something. We went over that last week. Is he afraid of Christ? Is he afraid of God? Or is he afraid of Satan? Or is he afraid of Eve? Or is he afraid of himself? Or is he afraid of what Satan could do to Eve? Or is he afraid of what Eve could do to herself? Which one of those is true? How much, I said last week, does he know God? That's why I raised Ephesians 2, because he knew the character of God's goodness. The nakedness also raises up the issue of God's omniscience, our hiddenness, our God's knowing. God can know things. Isn't that a shock? God knows all things. So when you are in nakedness in front of God or hiddenness in front of God, nothing can be hidden from God. So he knows that we are naked. He knows that all of us are naked. Note the hiddenness is prominent in this account. Naked, afraid, hiddenness. How many hiddennesses are there? Worked on that joke all day. What I get? Three laughs? It's not bad. I have hiddennesses and nakednesses. Another aspect, another application of nakedness is this corruption, sinful, unclothed. The fact that the garment must be stripped off by God and replaced with his blood covering garment. You can't go to God without the right garment. So the three things that I'm going to say nakedness, all of these have, all of these are proposing is death, knowing, corruption and sin, and the omniscience of God. How many is that? Three. (laughs) And this, by the way, got all the way to there. (laughs) That's not bad. 45 minutes without saying, by the way, by the way. When we are resurrected, what does, when we are in the rapture, those of us who will be alive, what does he do to your physical mechanism? What does he say? He changes it. How does he do that? How similar to the process of the fig leaves and the skins is it? You have a covering. He's, it's corrupted. It's sinful. And he's going to change it from corruptible to incorruptible. And all the affirmation, affirmation sorry, is applicable to Adam. But is it applicable to Christ, who is perfect, sinless, infinite, omniscient, creator God? We can figure out Adam, and I really didn't do it for you, but I got very close, which is, makes this a unique Sunday. You should be able to figure out what unashamed nakedness is, afraid nakedness is, hiding nakedness is, the fig removal skin issue. You should be able to figure that out for Adam. Now you've got to go over here to Christ and go, does he have a corrupted body? No. Is he hiding? Yes. Does he remove his tunic? No. Do the Romans remove his tunic? Yes. Does he have a covering put on him? Yes. Is it red? Yes. Does he need a covering from sin on him? No. So how does Christ's uh, antitype fulfillment of this fit with this? 
I just want you for today to recognize that nakedness is prominent here. And so more, more work to be done next week. How am I doing? Really close. Adam is a type of Christ. That's what it says, Romans 5.14. So we can look at Adam and figure something out about Christ. He's honored. That's a tremendous honor to be a type of Christ. And he is called that specifically in the Bible. That has incredible implications because just start thinking about the symbols of Christ. The Passover lamb is a symbol. And I put the blood on the threshold and the headboard and the sides. And what do I get? I get saved from death, right? Adam is a type of Christ. The Passover lamb is a symbol of Christ. Christ saves Israel from death. The crimson worm, it attaches itself to wood. Wood is a picture of humanity. It dies and gives this red birth. And it kills the poison gourd, which is killing the the, uh, Jonah, right? And it is saving Jonah from poison. That's Eve and Adam poisoned. So I see the crimson worm as a symbol. Aaron takes the censer and rushes into the middle of the midst of the dying. Saves them from the plague. Let me back up. Passover lamb saves Israel. Crimson worm saves Jonah. Rahab's scarlet cord saves her and her family. And the two witnesses. Oh, that's interesting. Aaron saves the dying from the plague. Moses lifts up the brazen serpent and saves again from poison. Joseph saves the world from famine and death. So the most obvious of all of these obvious questions is what? If he's a type of Christ, and he is, then Adam is saving somebody. That's what you've got to do to be a type of Christ. Because Christ says his name, salvation. So who is Adam saving? Who is he afraid of and who is he saving? Those are your two Adam questions for the week to come. To be a type of Christ, Adam must save. Adam must be a sacrifice, a mediator, a substitute in order to be a type of Christ. Now, he's not going to be Christ. He's not going to do what Christ can do because he's not God He's a type, not a contrast. Many will look at that and say it's all contrast. It clearly isn't. The word is type. It can't be contrast. There are some contrasts. We'll get into those. That's uh, Romans also. Type saved. Lastly, we have pain in childbirth. Kind of got Timothy back in the game here, didn't I? I know you're thinking, man, this guy is really good at this. Okay, nobody's doing that. Not a soul. Nowhere. Pain and childbirth. Another topic that drives women out of the church. As Adam and Eve most certainly did, there are, and they noticed this, they certainly noticed it. There are two successive mentions of childbirth in Genesis. So childbirth, and as soon as God said it, they noticed, ooh, he said it twice. Genesis 3.15, Genesis 3.16. The seed of the woman, childbirth. Immediately followed by multiplied sorrow, pain in childbirth. Timothy, the woman will be saved 
by childbirth. Put them all together now. You got it. We're done here. Childbirth is a pattern. It's a three-phase pattern. I'm fascinated by our culture. We have put childbirth into a three-phase pattern. Three months, three months, three months. What woman does not know the final moments of childbirth? Now, she may not know that... Lori watches these shows. I didn't know I was pregnant. She loves those shows. She laughs and laughs and laughs. So if I want her to be in a good mood, that's what we're watching. (laughs) How can you not know, she thinks, but they don't know for an assembly of reasons. But eventually they do know. How do they know? (coughs) What woman does not know the final moments of childbirth? What in Scripture is equated to those final moments? What do we call those final moments? They are the birth pangs and they are the pain of childbirth. And what woman doesn't go through that? How many have forgotten it? Well, you forget it long enough to have another child. So if you have two children, then something's going on there. What in Scripture is equal to, if you want to think of it that way, to birth pangs or birth pain? Again, when the baby is coming... Does the woman know that the baby is coming? Men, shut up here. I have seen doctors say, nurses, bless their hearts, wonderful. You've got a few more hours. And the woman looks at them, no, I don't. I know that this baby is coming. So what are the signs of a coming baby? And apply that to what? Because he says childbirth, the, the nine months of childbirth, the three threes, if you will, the trimesters, that is equal to something. What is it equal to in the Bible? The end of the age of the Gentiles. Who is the woman in that analogy? Who's going to know that the end of the age of the Gentiles is coming? Who will know what the birth pains are? The woman will know. Will the doctor know? Maybe. Yes. These were all subtle ways in which to say this lecture is over for now. Rejoice, all who are here. Next week, we'll get into childbirth, what it means. You can take your childbirth experience, women, and figure out prophecy. You're going to know, because you're going to see the relationship between childbirth. And God gave that to Eve, didn't he? And she thought, when she went through the pain of childbirth, the pain of Abel over twins, she thought, this is the seed of the woman. Had an arrow view. She thought there would just be her, Adam, and a couple of kids, and that would be the end of it. It's turned out to be billions and billions of us.